I'm Father Ron Shibley, founder and director of the Anglican Internet Church, and I welcome you to episode 45 in the fourth edition of the AIC Bible Study video series, The New Testament Gospels. At the end of the episode, I'll point out where material in episode 45 appears in the AIC bookstore publication, The Gospel of John, annotated and illustrated. In this episode, I complete the series with part 7 of 7 in a discussion of unique themes, details, and events in the Gospel of St. John. With this final episode in the series, I conclude my discussion of the remaining unique events in the Gospel of St. John with the final four, beginning with the restoration of the adulterous woman in John 8, verses 3 to 11. The time is just after the Jewish Feast of Pentecost in 29 A.D. and comes immediately after Nicodemus stood up for fair treatment for Jesus, discussed in episode 42, and immediately before the I Am the Light of the World declaration discussed in episode 31. The location is the temple at Jerusalem to which Jesus had gone after coming down from the Mount of Olives. The audience is those listening to Jesus' teaching and a group of scribes and Pharisees. The illustration, The Woman Taken in Adultery, is an Ottonian-era illumination in egg tempera and gold on parchment made around 1020 A.D. from the Hitda Codex, folio 171, in the Universitats und Landesbibliothek Darmstadt, Germany. We want to thank the authorities at the library for granting us permission to use high-resolution images. In episode 45, the entire context, including St. John's own commentary, is incorporated into the presentation. The reading and discussion begins with verses 3 through 6a. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. Adultery is a violation of the seventh commandment. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, the man is also considered guilty. But the Pharisees did not introduce him into this encounter with Jesus. As St. John suggests in verse 6a, their intent was to trap Jesus. This means that no matter how he answered, he would violate either the scriptural command from Deuteronomy 22, verses 24 and 25, if he did not advocate stoning, or as the NKJV Study Bible observes, had he condoned stoning, he would have violated Roman rules against such punishment by death for Hebrew crimes. As St. John records in verses 6b through 8, Jesus did neither. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, 
He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. The illustration, woman taken in adultery, is another illumination in egg tempera and gold on parchment, this time from the Codex Egberti, produced in the fourth quarter of the 10th century A.D., from Codex 24 at the Wissenschaftliche Bibliothek der Stadt Trier, formerly called the Trier City Library, Trier, Germany. The Orthodox Study Bible, New Testament, and Psalms observes that verses 5 and 8 are the only examples in the New Testament of Jesus writing anything. St. John's narrative does not specify what was written. In the Western Church tradition, the explanation is that he wrote the words from the Seventh Commandment. In the Eastern Church tradition, the teaching is that he wrote the names of those among the scribes and Pharisees who had themselves committed adultery. The Eastern Church interpretation, possibly influenced by St. John's reference to convicted by their conscience in verse 9, is entirely consistent with the theme of the Gospels of St. Matthew, St. Mark, and St. Luke, that Jesus could know secret thoughts by his divine will and power. St. John concludes with this in verses 9, 10, and 11. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Among the early Christian commentaries is this from St. Augustine, or Augustine in the English tradition, who wrote in the late 4th to early 5th century that the compassionate Christ condemned the sin of adultery under the 7th commandment, but forgave the sinner and gave the admonition, go and sin no more. The scriptural warrant for the sacrament of confession penance is discussed as the fourth of five unique events later in this episode. As St. John recorded in verse 6, the scribes and Pharisees had been using her in order to condemn Jesus. In the end, their own follies exposed, they did not stay behind to punish her. The third of the five unique events is Jesus washing the feet of the disciples described in John 13, verses 3 to 17. In the same tradition that Roman Catholics observed in labeling John 1, 19 through John 12, the book of Signs, chapter 13 through chapter 20, verse 31, is called the book of glory. The time is the evening of Monday, Thursday, the night before the Hebrew Passover and after the Last Supper. The place is Jerusalem. The audience is the twelve apostles. The illustration, Christ washing the apostles' feet, 
is an illumination in tempera and gold on parchment from the last quarter of the 10th century and first quarter of the 11th century A.D. for the Gospels of Otto III, made for the child Holy Roman Emperor Otto III at Reichenau Monastery, Reichenau, Germany, from the Bayerische Staatsbibliothek, Munich, Germany. Otto's mother was a Byzantine princess who married Otto II. St. John's unique account is presented in its entirety with commentary as appropriate, beginning with verses 3 through 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. The illustration, Christ washing the apostles' feet, is a 16th century A.D. egg tempera and gold on panel icon in the style of the Peskov School in Peskov, Russia, possibly from the museum there. St. John reports in verses 6 through 11 the following dialogue between Jesus and Simon Peter. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Simon Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed need only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, You are not all clean. The illustration, Christ washing the apostles' feet, is a 19th century Munich-style stained-glass window at Saint-Pierre Church, which is French for Peter, at Orne in the Basse-Normandy region, or Lower Normandy, in France. In 2016 A.D., Upper and Lower Normandy were merged into a single jurisdiction called Normandy. Explaining this event in the first millennium of the Church, the early fathers, especially in the Western Church, which had no tradition of foot washing, found St. John's account needed explanation. Among those commenting were the AIC's patron saint, John Chrysostom in the Eastern Church in the late 4th and early 5th century, St. Ambrose of Milan in the 5th century, and St. Augustine in the English manor or Augustine in the American of Hippo, who was St. Ambrose's most famous pupil and much later in northeast England in the 8th century, the Venerable Bede. They all saw evidence of humility in Jesus taking off his outer garment and girding his waist with a towel in the manner of a servant and not asking for help from any of the twelve, including Judas Iscariot. Second, the act was necessary for the apostles to be prepared for what was coming 
in the three days to come. Third, they also saw it as a type of baptism with water, as a spiritual form of cleansing parallel to repentance and confession. Note in the detail from the 16th century Russian Orthodox icon, only St. Peter is pointing to his own head. Jesus offered them an explanation of foot washing in verses 12 through 17. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garment, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The illustration is an apse mosaic from the north wall at the nave at Hosius Lucas, a Greek Orthodox monastery in Distomo in the Boeotia region of south-central Greece. The church housing the mosaic was built in the 10th century honoring a monastic saint, the venerable Lucostieris, not to be confused with Luke the Evangelist. I applied perspective correction and other adjustments to the original image. Foot washing remains popular in the Eastern Church and among many Anglicans. The 1928 Book of Common Prayer opens a door for it by providing a second gospel reading, John 13, 1-15, for Maundy Thursday, although it does not include a text or instructions. In the AIC bookstore publication, Occasional Services for Anglican Worship, I include the complete Holy Eucharist service for Maundy Thursday evening, using the reading from John 13, 1-15. I wrote the service and used it in my former parish before my retirement from pulpit ministry. The service includes an Old Testament reading from Exodus 12, verses 1-14, to a verse and response psalm reading based on Psalm 116, verses 12 to 16, and the wording and instructions for a foot-washing ceremony, all found on pages 55 to 73. Included in the book are texts for several other services not specifically provided for but not in contradiction with the 1928 Book of Common Prayer, including Ascension, Transfiguration, Easter Sunrise with Procession, an Advent wreath ceremony, the Great O Antiphons for the seven, last seven days of Advent, and a Christmas Eve and Christmas Day Mass. The final two of the five unique events in the Gospel of St. John each occurred during the days after the Resurrection. The fourth unique event is the scriptural origin of the sacrament of confession slash penance, which is found in John 20, verses 21, 22, and 23. The time is eight days after the resurrection on the, quote, first day of the week, 
and the location is Jerusalem. The audience is ten of the remaining eleven disciples. Thomas was not present. The illustration is a detail of Jesus offering a blessing from a mosaic in the south gallery of the Hagia Sophia, Constantinople, now Istanbul, Turkey, added to the original 6th century basilica in the 11th century in honor of the Byzantine Emperor Constantine IX Monomachus. The apostles are gathered in the upper room behind a locked door, quote, in fear of the Jews, unquote, and Jesus appeared to them. I begin with verse 21, in which Jesus, quote, breathes, unquote, on them the Holy Spirit. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Several topics in this dialogue in the upper room have been discussed in earlier episodes. The meaning of peace in episode 14 in the context of St. Luke's nativity account and in episode 21 in the context of St. Luke's account of the sending of the 70. St. John's frequent use of the phrase the Jews was discussed in episode 40, and the doubts of St. Thomas eight days later was discussed in episode 41. At the AIC, we have developed the AIC bookstore publications as a library of print resources that can help increase anyone's knowledge of Scripture and church doctrine. To learn more about the seven sacraments of the church, including confession slash penance, see pages 66 to 73 in the Beliefs of the Anglican Church. For more on the sacrament of confession and how it is used in, the Ang in Anglican corporate worship using the 1928 Book of Common Prayer, see the entry for confession on pages 48 to 49 and the entry for corporate worship on page 51 in our publication, Layman's Lexicon. These books are available in print and Kindle versions at reasonable cost using the virtual bookstore link at the bottom of the homepage at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net. The fifth and final example of the five unique events in the Gospel of St. John is Jesus' post-resurrection breakfast with the remaining eleven disciples. The place is on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias, the name John uses for the Sea of Galilee. The illustration for this series of slides is the second miraculous draft of fishes by James Tissot. It is one of the Life of Christ series of watercolor and charcoal paintings he made on gray wove paper between 1886 and 1894 and is now part of the collection of the Brooklyn Museum. 
For certain scenes, details have been enlarged from the original work. As St. John records the event in John 21, verses 2 to 7, the often impetuous St. Peter took the lead. St. John's descriptions linking the scenes, especially the small details he includes, give a strong sense of both personal knowledge and of the close social intimacy among those present. Here is St. John's account. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. Note that it was St. John, or that disciple whom Jesus loved in verse 7, who identified the figure on the shore as the post-resurrection Jesus. Later in verse 12, St. John states that they all knew it was the Lord. The always impetuous Peter, described by St. John in episode 42 as rushing past him to be the first to enter the empty tomb, put on his outer garment and, quote, plunged into the Sea of Tiberias, presumably to be the first to greet the Lord. St. John's unique narrative continues in verses 8 through 13. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, that's about 350 feet, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. I mentioned in episode 40 that St. John was fond of symbolism, especially in the use of numerology, which he employed more extensively in Revelation. In the AIC Bible study video series Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation, and the companion book of the same name, I devoted, respectively, all of episode 2 in the video series and pages 7 to 11 in the print version, a primer on numerology and revelation. 
Here again in verse 11, a symbolic number appears in the size of the catch, 153 fish. In the early church, the number 153 was interpreted to mean all the nations of the world. According to the commentary on verse 11 in the Orthodox Study Bible, New Testament, and Psalms, a modern scholar argues that 153 is the numerical sum of value of the letters making up the phrase, the children of God. Another interesting detail St. John provides is that in spite of the size of the catch, the net was not broken. In episode 41, a discussion of Jesus' relationship with his father, I noted that St. John quotes Jesus using a similar phrase in John 6.39 and John 17.12, in which he said that of that which was given to him by the father, nothing was lost except the son of perdition. It was from this scene, John 21, verses 3 to 17, and other scripture that the use of the fish logo, overprinted with the Greek word for fish, ichthus, which as early as the first century was interpreted to stand for Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. The illustration is the calling of James and John, another opaque watercolor over graphite on gray wove paper by James Tissot, painted between 1886 and 1894 at the Brooklyn Museum. In the early church, both in the Eastern and Western church traditions, as early as the 3rd century, the combined symbol of the logo and words was used by Christians at first secretly and then openly. Other scriptural sources for imagery related to water and fishing are Jesus calling the disciples to be, quote, fishers of men, which I discussed in episode 7 and episode 28, the sacrament of baptism by water, which was discussed in episode 7, and the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 with a small number of fish, discussed in episode 39. Thank you for joining me for this 45-episode series, which is enhanced with historic church art from both the Eastern and Western church traditions and includes more internal cross-references to other episodes and also to other AIC resources. Episode 1 in the series was an introduction with a short historical account of the development of the canonical Gospels. Episode 2 through Episode 6 were focused on the Gospel of St. Matthew, commemorated in the late 8th, early 9th century illumination from the Codex Aureus of Lorsch, produced at the scriptorium of the Benedictine Abbey of Reichenau, Lake Constance, Reichenau, Germany, between 778 and 820 A.D., near the beginning of the Carolingian era of the revived Holy Roman Empire in Europe, initially led by Charlemagne. The major themes were the etymology, or origin and meaning, of the name Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus following the line of Abraham, the life of Jesus explained in the context of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, 
and finally demonstrations of divinity through his own prophecies of events to come. Episode 7 through episode 11 were focused on the Gospel of St. Mark. St. Mark's major themes were Jesus as a suffering and humble servant of the Father who sent him into the world. The divinity of Jesus demonstrated in 18 miracles divided into several categories, power over nature, over speech and sight, over death, and two examples of power over all things, demonstrated in the two examples of his feeding of the multitudes, the concept of salvation through faith being available to all believers through the good news of the gospel message, and the importance of the turning point verse, Mark 10, verse 45, and finally, the power of faith. Episode 12 through episode 25 were focused on the Gospel of St. Luke. St. Luke's major themes, presented in elegant Koine or New Testament Greek, were his genealogy of Jesus traced through the royal line of David all the way back to Adam, the infancy of John the Baptist going back to his conception, and the angelic intervention, the nativity and childhood of Jesus, offering the only glimpse in Scripture of his boyhood. The importance of Mary, demonstrated through the concepts of obedience to the will of the Father and of righteousness in life. The universality of the offer of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The power of prayer, demonstrated in the prayer habits of Jesus Parallelism, demonstrated in the similarities in the lives of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. God fulfills his promises, another way of expressing St. Matthew's theme of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And finally, the power of faith. His gospel also includes unique content, including four songs, all of which are still used in traditional worship in the Anglican tradition many unique parables, and some of the most famous in Scripture, and finally, the inclusion of more women in important roles. Episode 26 through episode 45 are focused on St. John's unique gospel. The Gospel of St. John offers Christians the first theology of Christianity, earning St. John the title of John the Theologian in the Eastern Church tradition. More than any other gospel, the Gospel of St. John is built around a central major theme, the nature, origin, and purpose of the incarnation, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. St. John illustrated by example this powerful combination of ideas through his account of the seven signs Jesus did, beginning with the wedding at Cana. And in his accounts of Jesus' I Am declarations, connecting himself with the God of the Old Testament, as further proof in his unique prelude in chapter 1, he connected the incarnation to the creation account, starting with his statement in John 1, 1, in the beginning, which has the effect of making the Gospel of St. John begin with the same three words used in Genesis 1, verse 1. Among the other important unique content 
is the personal details about people, including references to Nicodemus and Mary, to the apostles Thomas, Nathaniel, <clears throat> Philip, Andrew, who have speaking roles only in St. John's Gospel, the five unique events, including two after the resurrection, his use of numerology and his offering of the words of Jesus concerning concepts of time, and his use of evocative Greek words which are translated as love, peace, and abide. The illustration is one of the oldest known illuminations of St. John from the Codex Aureus of Canterbury, or also known as the Codex Aureus of Stockholm, painted in the region of Canterbury in southeast England around 750 A.D. St. John demonstrated many of these same qualities and insights in Revelation. In the AIC Bible Study video series, Revelation, an Idealist Interpretation, I explore Revelation verse by verse in 28 episodes, which include 51 illuminations from the early 11th century Revelation manuscript, the Bamberg Apocalypse. The same material is also available in print form in the companion book of the same name, available in full-color paperback and Kindle editions. Considering all these unique characteristics of the Gospel of St. John and Revelation and St. John's three epistles, it should not be a surprise to traditional Christians that the so-called reformers in the modern secular world have targeted St. John's work as well as that of the other prominent apostle, St. Paul. Their reasoning is obvious. If the writings of these two stalwart defenders of the Christian faith handed down from the apostles can be discredited and discarded from canonical scripture, the reformers will have a clean slate to write new doctrine consistent with their secular agenda. There are no more important contributors to the Christian doctrines concerning the divine origin, nature, and purpose of the Incarnation and the understanding that the faith is accessible only through faith in Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of the Father, the sacraments of the Church, including baptism, Holy Eucharist, penance, and holy matrimony between one man and one woman. I hope that viewers and listeners to these videos and podcasts have found these 45 episodes on the Gospels helpful in increasing their understanding of the traditions handed down from the Apostles. I close out the series with some updated information about the AIC bookstore publications and changes to our website. Built upon the extensive resources assembled for this fourth edition of New Testament Gospels, the AIC Bookstore offers a way for readers, viewers, and listeners to enhance their understanding of the Christian faith. With the publication of our newest print books, The Gospel of St. Matthew, Annotated and Illustrated, The Gospel of Mark, Annotated and Illustrated, The Gospel of Luke, annotated and illustrated, and finally, the Gospel of John, annotated and illustrated. Anyone can, at reasonable cost, own their own copy 
of a commentary Bible illustrated with high-resolution images produced from the 5th to the 20th century. We have worked with libraries in continental Europe, the United States, England, and Wales to obtain high-resolution images, many of these rarely seen by the general public, including icons, frescoes, stained-glass windows, etchings, engravings, and the beautiful hand-painted illuminations which emerged in the Western church tradition in the mid-700s and reached their peak in the following five or six centuries before print books emerged. Like our books on Revelation and the writing prophets of the Old Testament, each of the four gospel books is printed in eight and a half by eight and a half format with coated paper stock. Each illuminated gospel includes the full text displayed in 13.5 point Adobe Trajan Pro type using the NKJV translation. Sections of readings are followed by my commentary presenting the traditional understanding based upon both the Western and Eastern Church traditions. Each of the four books includes a bibliography and a list of sources in which, wherever possible, the shelf or manuscript number and the folio number and the location of the resource is provided. Like all the AIC bookstore publications, these four volumes are available using the virtual bookstore link on the homepage at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net. The link will take you to my Amazon Author Central page, where all the AIC publications are available, all but one of them available in both print and Kindle editions. In the case of the Gospel books, the Kindle versions are electronic facsimiles of the original work. All net proceeds from the sale of these books is contributed to the AIC. Additionally, we've reconfigured our website to make it easier for site visitors to gain access to teaching and study materials in whatever format they prefer and how you prefer to learn. You can easily watch on demand any of our video series, whether from the Bible study videos, the seasonal videos, Christian education videos, or other videos using the links on the Bible study, New Testament, and digital library pages. Or if you prefer, you can listen to podcast versions of all our videos and to homilies based on the 1928 Book of Common Prayer readings through links on either the podcast archive or the podcast homilies pages. If you prefer to read your learning material, you can purchase books through the virtual bookstore link on the homepage at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net. On the virtual bookstore page, you will also find the ISBN or ASIN numbers, which will enable you to order our books from commercial bookstores. Before I close out this episode and this series, I want to thank once again Richard M.S. Irwin in England for his generosity in permitting the Anglican Internet Church to use his inspiring organ performance 
of all glory, laud, and honor as the opening and closing theme. Richard makes his music available via download for use in local services through his dedicated webpage, https colon right slash right slash play dot hymns without words dot com. You'll find the limitations and copyright restrictions on his website. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be merciful to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Glory be to God for all things. Amen. This program has been a presentation of the Anglican Internet Church. We invite you to visit our website and make use of its resources at www.anglicaninternetchurch.net.